Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is acclaimed New Testament scholar, best-selling author, and popular blogger Scott McKnight. In his new book, Reading Romans Backwards, he proposes a new way to read the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, an epistle that he says has shaped Western Christianity more than any other book in the Bible. Christians have been missing the point of Romans, he argues, treating it as fodder for esoteric theological debates. In reading the letter backwards, as McKnight proposes, Paul's true intent comes into focus. It's a great book, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you Scott McKnight. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Scott, thanks to invite me, and I'm glad to be with you. I'm uh, I'm aware that you have had David Fitch on, so we're going to get a more reasonable, interesting conversation now. <laughs> well, I mean, at least I know that if we get to sports, it will be baseball and not hockey. Hockey doesn't even isn't even considered a sport in our household. Although in the book, you have a great golf analogy where you talk about a guy you know who played on both the PGA Tour and the Senior Tour. When you ask him how far he hits a lob wedge, there's like a paragraph answer. As a golfer, I really appreciated that, that you took seriously the precision, which it can It was unbelievable conversation. I, I one time asked him about putting and it went on for 30 minutes. Has the friendship <laughs> improved your game? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. He helped me a lot. Uh a lot in many different ways, but uh, I haven't played golf much in the last few years because um, it hurts my back so much, and I don't prefer to lose study days so I can play golf. So I, I need to find a way to play, keep playing golf. There's a great, the best golf book I think I've ever read is, is Rotella. Golf is not a game of perfect, and I feel like you could call that. You could use that title for your Romans book because it's almost like community is not a game of perfect, but of welcome. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and really, you suggest something quite novel here. You think that the key to reading the book of Romans is start with the back. And when you see this woman, Phoebe, who's a friend of Paul's, a woman of some note, and she's probably the person that's reading this letter dramatically to this group of house churches. When you figure out who she is, when you figure out who the letter's addressed to, and some of the tensions in that church, you totally see some things in the letter that otherwise you would ignore and turn into abstractions. Is that kind of a fair skinny on the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is, uh, that the book, the book of Romans is the most influential book in the history of Christian theology. It's the most influential book in the Bible on Christian theology. From Augustine all the way into the modern world, the way we frame theology is based on the Book of Romans. Unfortunately, Paul was not writing philosophy or systematic theology, although what he says can be understood by philosophers in specific ways, and they can see philosophical thinking, or systematic theology, and systematic theologians can find things and have and have exploited Paul and have done so very well at times. But the missing ingredient is that Paul is actually writing to a fractured church, a set of churches, house churches, probably five or more in the city of Rome, who are at one another's throats over 
how best to live the Christian life. Sounds like modern, sounds like modern people to me. Sounds like I was describing this one day and someone said, that's just like my church right now. I went, oh, so that's good. Um, and is it one of the differences though? It seems like because the church is small and in its embryonic stages of life, you can't go start a new denomination that quickly or easily. I mean, it seems like they're stuck together. And Paul's aware of that. Whereas today, you just start a new church. If you know, if, you know, if you don't like uh, smoke machines or karaoke hymns, or or you have this cultural difference or something, you start a new church and call it missional. <laughs> Are you describing David Fitch, our good friend here? Oh no, no. Okay, no, that is true. Is that uh, because Christianity is tolerated? Because Christianity is a part of our culture. Uh, people who don't get along can form a new church and be quite happy about it. I would say that in the first century in Rome, that these strong believers, or Paul would call strong, probably Gentile believers of significant social status, and Jewish believers, whom he calls weak, which is hardly a compliment, uh, who believe that the best way to advance is to follow the law, and the strong who who were Con- condemning and uh, condescending toward these Jewish believers. Uh, I don't know how much they got together and how they were able to eat together. So there's maybe there is a actually a paradigm here of Jewish believers and Gentile believers really struggling to meet together and in many occasions just decided to meet separately. So it would be somewhat like the church today, but Paul, Paul will have none of it. His central command, the central impact of the Book of Romans is to eat with one another, to welcome one another. This is language of sitting at table with one another. Amazing, because that's yeah. that's often the thing that all the ecumenical debate works towards, right? Yeah, you, you sit there and you hammer out all these theological arguments. You try to recognize ordination and this or that doctrine, so we can get to the point where we could eat together, have communion together. It, it sounds like you're saying Paul's saying that's where you start to work out how to get along is is at the table it's not the end point okay here here's something important i think in some ways that was the goal of the christian life is to live together in peace and not look like rome so it's not it's not like they're going to go live their christian life separately that eating together living with one another eating with one another uh, enjoying one another, treating one another as siblings was the very essence of how Paul would describe the Christian life in the first century. Yeah, and that life, I mean, the challenge is, right, that you have, and you talk about, there's probably, after the Jews get expelled by Emperor Claudius in the 50s, and then Claudius dies, and then they're allowed to return, these they come back to a largely, the, the church is largely Gentile, and there's this dispute over how much, how Jewish the gospel still is. How much, you know, do you need Jesus plus some other things to really be worshiping, you know, the God of Israel through the Messiah Jesus or the Lord Jesus, the Gentiles think of him. And there's this tension that the the Gentiles seem to think you don't need much other than faith in, in being united, united to this Jesus. And and the, the weak are the, are, are this Jewish party that think you kind of need a little bit more of a Jewish flavor to the faith if we're all going to be on the same page. Uh, Scott, one time I was speaking at a at a German Baptist church, and I met some older people. And uh, because I I was fortunate enough to grow up with uh, 
in my junior high and high school days with really excellent German teachers, I was able to speak to these old Germans in German. And they basically told me the church was no longer the church. Now, as far as I looked at it, it was a pretty vibrant church. It was doing pretty well. But for them, it just, you know, they weren't singing hymns in German. The sermon was not in German. The culture was no longer in the German language. And I feel that that's the way probably the weak people Paul calls the weak, the Jewish believers, felt when they returned back to Rome and started meeting with the other believers, they realized, hey, they're reading in Greek and they're they're telling stories about Homer and they're talking about Plato and Aristotle and they're not talking about Moses. They don't seem to know about Leviticus. They don't care about Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, I'm not even sure they care about Jesus. So there wasn't there wasn't. When you that say Jewish. that they don't know Leviticus. You're not sure they even care about Jesus. That sounds like the American Church. <laughs> All right. I mean, half the churches you might go to, right? Well, yeah, there's a there it's interesting that you would say that. Increasingly churches are even even among evangelicals, certain types of evangelicals are increasingly kingdom and Jesus oriented, and I'm finding um an inability of young students when I was at in teaching at North Park University and now at Northern Seminary. My students are far more conversant with the gospels and Jesus than they are with Paul. I grew up in a world that didn't know Jesus but knew Paul. So I, I think that there's a growth in Jesus and kingdom stuff that is very healthy. So yeah, yes, but I would say these uh, these weak believers are hearing these Gentiles, and their fundamental tension is these these people don't care about the Torah. They'll eat a pork sandwich, a ham sandwich like it's nothing, and don't think anything about it without sensitivity to our scruples. In fact, you know, Scott, I often look at it this way. The, the weak believers, if they're pushing for the strong believers to be more sensitive to the Old Testament, to what we call the Old Testament, to the Torah, to observance, um, to living out the will of God as taught in the Bible, their argument was these Gentile believers don't know the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about what we call the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. They just and we, and we've got the Bible on our side. The Bible is with us. This is what God said: You have to circumcise your sons on the eighth day. Uh, you you're not supposed to be eating these kinds of. You're not supposed to be eating crab. Um, and I think they had a biblical argument. And the strong probably said, you know, we don't care what the Bible says. And you you say Paul here is probably in the strong camp. He thinks, hey, we're we're spreading this message of Jesus. I'm the kind of designate here to to the Gentiles, and and I, I want to say, you know, Jesus kind of plus nothing equals everything. Uh, but at the same time, he wants the the strong to honor the weak. He wants them to welcome one another and and be at peace, as you say. And and so he kind of, even though his sympathies are kind of with one party. He's trying to be really even-handed throughout the book to get them to the place where they can welcome one another and glorify God together in in the heart of of you know the civilized world, right? Well, I would, I yes, and, but I think I would put it this way: I think the strong were offended by Paul, and I think the weak were offended by Paul. All right, so Paul tramples on the scruples of the weak by saying, essentially, if 
someone thinks it's okay not uh, not to eat, not to worry about pork, that's okay. They have to answer to their Lord. If someone wants to eat, uh, wants to observe uh, halakhic observance, in other words, follow the rules about kosher food, that's okay. They have to answer to the Lord too. But when you do that, when you say to a politically rightist, it's okay for Christians to be politically leftist. They think you've given up everything. They think you've compromised. When you say to a leftist, it's okay to support a rightist in politics, the leftist thinks you no longer have moral scruples. When you do this, both groups are irritated. And I think that's what Paul did. He irritated both parties, but I would say probably especially the weak. Now, I wonder if, as a Bible scholar, as someone who's sort of with this book said, hey, I, you know, some scales have fallen off of my eyes after years of reading this book of Romans, and I think we're all missing a lot of stuff. When you're in the pew, I mean, is it torturous at times because you're thinking, hey, uh, you're preaching here and, and, you're, and you're not rooted in what really was going on in this text, and yet people seem to often like that kind of preaching or people, you know, seem to often find themselves encouraged by readings of a book like Romans that that seem to not have some of these deep sociological conflicts in mind. I mean, how do you reconcile all all that from sort of when you're in the role of professor to when you're in pew and, and sort of living in church life? I'm uh, 65 years old. I've heard a lot of sermons. Uh, if I could only listen to sermons that agreed with me, I would be in a church of one. So I. I don't spend my time in a sermon thinking, oh, that was so exegetically uninformed. And I don't say that is so historically ignorant. I just try to get out of the sermon uh, what they say. And I don't see the focus of a church to be on uh, the sermon, but on fellowship with one another, uh, the Eucharist table, we're Anglicans. Um, so I, I don't look at it that way. I'm not bothered by... I, if the sermon was really bad, uh, then I, I might say something, but I can't remember the last time I told a pastor or a preacher that I thought they were wrong. When I was in my 30s, I, I, I probably saw it almost every week. <laughs> I no longer even think about those things. Although I will say this, uh, I was sitting in a sermon and Bill Hybels was preaching at uh, Willow Creek. And uh, he said something about the Pharisees and Jews that was so historically inaccurate that I made a commitment right then and there that I would write a book about Jesus that was readable for Willow Creek's audience, but brought into play the Jewish context. That book became the Jesus Creed. I have, hard on, I have that book on my shelves. Yeah, that that was a hard book to write because it was the first time I went in that direction of writing something for that kind of audience. I'd been writing books for fellow professors and students, you know, so in other words, theologically educated people. So, uh, but by and large, Scott, I don't spend my time worrying about sermons. Uh, people preach what they preach. Most of the time, what they say is true, whether it's the right text or not. Yeah. No. Writing this book on the book of Romans, my guess is the people that are spending the most time on this book in, say, the North American scene are people that are pretty invested in a reading of it that comes out of the 16th century, out of the Reformation and, and traditions like that, out of, out of this sort of 
sense that it, it it's this universal story about the struggle between trying to get yourself right before God, realizing your own failure, turning to uh, from works to faith alone, and then being delivered and and struggling along in the sort of you know at the same time sinner saint journey of the Christian life. I mean, how do you break through? Because that's a pretty, that, that crowd c- can be uh, pretty defensive about that reading. Cause, and, and, it's, and it's been a reading that has sort of, be, you know, helped encourage a lot of people. I mean, how do, you, how do you kind of break through and say, hey, there's more to it than this? That's a really good question. All right, I, I think the answer to that is they're not going to listen to me. I, I start with that approach. I'm not trying to convince. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to be persuasive in my book, present my case. I'm not trying to convince someone to change their mind. Uh, if I did that, I would be, I, I think I would be a colossal failure because most people aren't going to change their mind who are already in that viewpoint. I present an alternative as compelling and as clear as I can and hope that I will influence, uh, my so the people m- more leaning in my direction and help them clarify it. And then, in that sense, tell a better story that could be more compelling. I don't think everything about what is often called the old perspective is wrong. I don't believe that. I believe that my approach to Romans modifies, enhances, expands, and tightens other readings of Romans. In other words, you could be old perspective and still value the problem of the weak and strong in Romans 14 to 15. You don't have to be new perspective or apocalyptic or whatever, all these viewpoints that are so popular today. So I'm trying to present a case for the Book of Romans that reads it from back to front. And once we get that back picture clarified, we start seeing differences in Romans 1 to 4 and 5 through 8. Um I'm trying to help that, and I hope it can help people who do not agree with me on the new perspective versus the old perspective. Uh, I hope I can find agreement with them and that they can they can see that this has value as well. In fact, one of the early books, uh, the only book ever written similar to what I'm doing, was by a guy named Paul Minear, The Obedience of Faith. And he wrote it back in the 1950s, and it's been largely ignored. I saw that Doug Moo had written a commentary, and he dismissed it in about three lines. Uh, and I thought, wow, there's more to this than that. Um, and yes, he did find five groups in Rome, and he tried to figure out each passage. And it, it was, you know, it's not completely compelling. But Paul Minear was far more uh, of an old perspective person. And he he found this kind of approach just as helpful for his approach to Romans. So I don't think my approach is exclusively for new perspective. It can be for old perspective and apocalyptic as well. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon. 
of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I wonder if that old perspective is rooted in a kind of sense that, hey, the human problem is seen through a lens that's maybe internal and psychological, and this attempt that's internal and psychological to find one's own salvation, redemption, and the futility of that. Could you say that, well, hey, it's not that the idea that human striving for its own path to redemption is wrong. It's just that what Paul's saying is the way people are doing it in this context isn't psychological and vertical. It's much more sociological and horizontal. Maybe it's still a form of self-righteousness, but it's not internalized. It's, hey, we're uh, righteous based on sort of being in the right group and the right group, which in some ways is a lot like what it seems like in social media today, right? I mean, like, uh, if you're not in the right group, people will tell you in Twitter or Facebook. Well, I think your description there is pretty accurate. I think that's, I think that's very much. I do. Th- okay. I, I don't think it just goes back to the Reformation. It's a uh, Augustinian. There's at least a deep root in Augustine that gives rise both to Luther and to Calvin and to probably the Anabaptists and to John Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards and everything in the Protestant tradition. So, yes, uh, I think it goes back there. And it is individual, and it can be very psychological. The Puritans mastered this, if you want to say they mastered it, but that that was their form of perfection of their theology was it was deeply psychological and almost an internal torture at times with some of these people uh, to find out if they were one of the elect and if they weren't they could praise God for his glory anyway um, that just doesn't sound like Romans and yes um, I think that Paul is talking about which group are you in are you in the church are you out of the church? The church is understood not as the replacement of Israel, but the expansion of Israel to include Gentiles. And he is very much concerned with the horizontal and the sociological without denying, ever minimizing the significance of the individual and therefore also at times the psychological. One cannot read Romans 7, no matter what you're reading, and not see a profound psychological insight into human struggle. Now, I think that's Paul posting a picture of what the judge, what the representative of the weak experiences when they they try to get Gentiles to follow the Torah, but still profoundly psychological. And we're going to read Romans 7 that way, uh, or at least some people are forever, and that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. And and when you say the judge, I mean, so much, it seems, if you're reading here, is 
showing Paul where both parties don't have it all together. And so some of the things that we read as universal statements about all of humanity or all of Israel, you're saying, no, no, they're actually cast rhetorically in very savvy ways so that, you know, that one party be cheering. Yeah, yeah, Paul. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, you got I, I wait, you're saying we have warts too, you know, <laughs> and, and, and both, you know, he, he draws you in and then says, aha, and all these aha moments, right? And and you say that oftentimes these statements that are taken as sort of universal statements about the human condition, while they may reveal something universal, are, are by Paul more tailored at these two parties and then learn and them learning to see uh, their own foibles, their own short-sightedness and where they both need to cling to Christ and welcome one another instead of to their own sort of prejudices and, and standoffishness. There's no doubt is that he's an equal opportunity critic. He, uh, he will give the weak and the strong uh, an earful. I think when uh, you start out Romans 1, here, here's an example of this. And Romans 1, 1 through 17 is just, you know, everybody loves it. It's all about Paul's theology, the gospel, etc. So we, we can pretty much agree with everything that is said about those passages. Then suddenly Paul erupts into, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed. And you go, whoa. And there is a side in which, uh, in the, what I call the soteriological readings, the classic readings where this is about, uh, how to get saved, is that Paul is now blasting Gentiles for their sinfulness. Okay. And then he's going to get after the Jews in Romans two. And then he's going to say everybody's a sinner in three and find the atonement in 321 to 26. And then say, see, it's not about merit. It's about faith. And then say we've been justified in Christ. That's that's a classic reading. I I doubt that Paul was trying to convince people to get saved. He was he was not writing this letter to get Romans saved. He was writing this letter to get saved Romans together in the at the table. So he's providing a theology that includes his soteriology. So here's what I think: when you read Romans one eighteen through thirty two, this famous passage that seems so strong, and it is a rude way to open up a letter after some nice verses that suddenly blast away at the wrath of God. It's pretty strong. And uh, I think the weak, the Jewish believer in Rome would be patting themselves on the back saying, yep, this this is what we see as a problem, a stereotypical, this is the deplorables for the weak. And yet when you read it, you think, this is not a typical Gentile. In Romans 2, Paul says positive things about Gentiles. Romans 15, he says positive things about Gentiles. The critical movement happens in chapter 2, verse 1, when he suddenly faces someone he calls the judge and says, who do you think you are judging people? So whoever he's got in mind found the right words being said in 118 through 32, and Paul completely pulls the rug out from under him. And it's says, almost like no, a courtroom court. scene, right? Where, where, where the, the prosecutor or the attorney is, 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 is asking the witness, asking the witness, and finally gets to the Perry Mason moment. And then the witness kind of falls apart because of where he's led them rhetorically. That's right. That's what he does. And he then says, you know, you're guilty too. You're, you're guilty of the same things. And they're going, whoa. And then he says, Gentiles who do what's right are doing what the law says, and they don't even have the law. So he takes the rug out from, he pulls the rug out from under the weak, I call him the judge, uh, and, and in that sense, it, you could make it anthropological of anybody, but I, I think he's got the, 
the weak, uh, an embodiment of the weak attitude toward the strong in the city of Rome, uh, imposing the law upon Gentile believers. He turns against them and just rips into them in chapter 2. And I point this out in the book. If you read Romans 2 through 4, you get a blasting away of questions. So many questions. And if you remember that this book was not written and translated into English in the NRSV or the NIV so people could see question marks, if you realize that Phoebe, I think, was probably reading this letter to each of the house churches aloud, and that every time she asked a question, she stopped. You know, there's some 30 questions in these passages. If you stop that many times, people are starting to get mad. You can see a judge or a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney just asking one question after another. I I got a comment. I think it was on my blog. Maybe it was on Facebook. Uh, someone who, um, talking about guns in the United States, which I'm, uh, I think we ought to cut back on guns. I, that's a, that's a mild way of saying it. This person asked about eight questions, just hammer and hammer. I thought one at a time, buddy. Well, <laughs> Phoebe, Phoebe, uh, asked 30 questions and this is very intense and it is uncomfortable for people to sit there and be asked questions because they would have been expected to answer that question to themselves, maybe aloud. Maybe she looked at him and said, what do you think? What do you do? What do you think of that question? Do you, do you think I'm right? Do you think Paul's right when he says this? Well, if they do, they're caving in. So if you know you're on the spot for three chapters and each question, if you answer it one way, you're a loser. It's tough to hang on that long and not get irritated. And only in chapter five does he release the pressure and begin to explore the dynamic of redemption through Christ in the spirit rather than redemption simply by the covenant of Abraham and the obedience of the Mosaic law. When I was in seminary, I took a class and one of the New Testament professors, Pauline Specials, took the entire session reading Romans dramatically to us out loud. And, and it was a powerful experience. And then asked us sort of what we heard afterwards. And it was amazing the things we heard that we wouldn't have heard if you just, you know, uh, like certain Protestant churches, we're going to spend the next four years going through Romans, half verse and half verse. It, it sounds like the kinds of things you're getting at in this book would be a lot more accessible if periodically churches did that, like figure out who had some dramatic talent in their Myths, spent some time looking at the themes and just sat and heard some of these letters read dramatically to everybody sitting there because that's how the, they were meant to be heard. Oh, it was uh, like an, over an hour, uh, 90 minutes, maybe. I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was a long class. So we took a break after he was done and when we talked after the break. Okay. Now here's, here's something else. Yeah. I, I think we would do ourselves a world of good if we did this. I think most people in our churches, they would leave. Uh, if you tried to read the whole book of Romans, I mean, if it's 90 minutes, they're not going to listen to a 90-minute sermon. There's another side to this. This letter wasn't read the way your professor read it. This letter was read to an audience that would have asked questions. What do you mean by that? They would have been oohing and on and no way in and yeah, yeah, keep it up. You know, you go, girl. Uh, that, that sort of thing's being said to Phoebe. So it would have been a very responsive audience, even a judgmental audience. Some of the weak and some of the strong would have been very irritated and would have been critical of what Paul was saying. 
So it would have been, it would have taken hours to get through the book of Romans. And someone could have said, hey, what do you mean? Who, who is the I of Romans 7, 5? Who, who are you talking about here? Are you talking about us? Are you talking about them? You know, that's sort of us, them. That's a David Fitch title book. Uh, so um, I, I would say, yes, I, I like that. I think it would help, but we might need to do it over time rather than uh, just in one setting. One of the things I think in your book that is so uh, striking and helpful and in tension with the way we're often used to hearing terms you talk about Romans 9 through 11, which is where Paul deals with election and Israel and predestination. I think in the history of at least the Western church and Western culture, election is looked at as the place where God conceals the hidden God. You know, you never know, you know, if, if, if you're going to be elect or reprobate and, and, you know, he chooses this one and not this one. And this is, you know, you, you don't focus on it too much. It should be comfortable for the, the elect, but it still produces anxiety. Whereas you seem to say that election in in the Bible isn't so much about concealing but revealing. God elects to show who He is and to and to show who's included next and to show how He's about redeeming the world and and and, and bringing blessings to the nations. And, and so these these choices are meant to not to sort of terrify and, and be at the point where they're inscru- inscrutable. But there's mystery to it. But the idea is the loose ends are going to be wrapped up in the promises somehow, and, and, that, and that these choices are, are, are meant to tell us something about the character of God, not to sort of pull down this curtain behind, you know, behind which might be this transcendental uh, tyrant or something. Uh, so, um, uh, Romans 9 through 11 is difficult. I think that um, there is an inscrutability about God here. There, there's some of that theme. Uh, but the tortured psychological approach is entirely based on this as an individualistic reading when the text is about who is next as the person or group that God is going to work with for the redemption or for the accomplishment of his plan in history for redemption. It is not so much about individuals getting saved. It is about people being chosen to carry on the promise that God has made with from Abraham on. Furthermore, it is it is inherent to this chapter that the God of Paul is a surprising God. There is a surprising grace. You cannot believe who he worked with next. Not this one, but that one. And that is why Paul can say the Gentiles are included. You're all surprised? You should never be surprised by the God of surprises. So that's sort of his narrative uh, warp and woof. He, he he begins with all this surprising. Yes, you're the people of God. Yes, Israel is God is is God is eye on. Yes, you're the apple of His eye. One thing after another that is assuring and affirming and positive, etc. But at the same time, do you have you have you read this story? This is a story of God choosing not the one you expected to choose, but someone else to carry on His promise. He doesn't say that these people are damned and going to hell. He says this is who he chose next. Now he is working with an Israel that is expanded, and the goal is for all Israel to be saved, Romans eleven twenty five. So he's he's got big plans in mind, and they have narrow plans in mind. So and then there's another thing here, Scott. I think nine one through eleven ten, eleven eleven, eleven twelve. 
That section is almost entirely shaped for the weak. The strong get to listen, and they they kind of thump on their own chests. And then at 11.13, he says, I speak to you Gentiles now. And there, at that point, he quits asking questions, and he st- mostly, and he starts telling them, now look, yes, God is working with you, but if you're not faithful, you're going to end up with the rest of these people who haven't been faithful, who haven't trusted, who haven't been observant. So don't get so cocky about your own status. So um, he's still carrying on between the weak and the strong in that passage, and I think we need to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, it's almost as if to say, just because they're chosen doesn't mean they're choice, right? <laughs> to keep 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 some humility about you, right? Often God chooses the not choice. <laughs> yeah, and and that that's I think is important to understand that this isn't simply about salvation. This is about the redemptive plan of God in on the plane of history. In your work over the past few years, you've had a continued and Seem, seemingly renewed emphasis on the church and, and and how in the New Testament you can't really separate the church and the kingdom. They might not be exactly the same thing at, at every moment, but there's but they're closely related. Is that in response to what you see on the cultural landscape? I mean, I think that kind of I see that in the read even in your reading of Romans on the cultural landscape, we have more and more people who self-identify as Christian in some way. Many who have come out of evangelical kind of movements who say they're 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 the duns, you know, not the nuns, they're the duns. So like we're done with the church. I mean, we still are into Jesus and probably still believe in God, but I mean, the church is the last thing we want anything to do with. And it seems like so much of what animates you is the sense that that's the wrong spirit for the for reading the Bible and for living out the Christian life. Yeah, very uh, shrewd observation. That's right. Okay, uh, a little bit of a story. I would say that I was, uh, that we were churchgoers, committed, always. We've always gone to church. We took our kids to church. I was a little bit aloof from the centrality of the church uh, until I started teaching. And this is odd. While I was teaching in the seminary, I found the church to be annoying. When I started teaching at the university, I began to see the implications of that kind of thinking, that the church needed to be more central. I was finding increasingly students who thought being a Christian and going to church were were like choices. Either you follow Jesus or you go to church. Or they thought following Jesus had nothing to do with going to the church. And it was when I wrote, and, and we were going uh, to Willow Creek at the time, and I was committed. We, were, we, we, enjoy, we enjoyed going to church. Uh, so I was never questioning about whether to go to church or not. But when I wrote Jesus Creed, suddenly I started getting invited to church conferences to speak, to all kinds of churches to speak, to events with pastors and leaders. And I, my life was reshaped toward the church by writing that book and the implications or the follow-up of the consequences of that book. So I became more and more committed to the significance of the church. And while I was growing, this is 2004, while I was growing in my commitment to the church, I was noticing increasingly the number of students, the number of people I was in contact with who were beginning to be committed to the kingdom of God, but thought it had nothing to do with the church. It became public benevolence and social justice and activism. And I thought, well, this this just can't be right. 
And I would have students say things to me in class, and I think, oh, it cannot be right. So I, I did a fresh study of the meaning of the word kingdom and worked really hard on this to see its relationship to the church. And I discovered that kingdom always is a description of a people under a king. It is not a realm only. It's, you know, it's not a rule. It's, it can't just be the dynamic of God ruling. It is God ruling over a people in a place who follow God's will. In the New Testament, if you ask where the kingdom is, people could say, well, it's over there. Those Romans, see those five house churches? It's, 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 in some sense, it always had this concrete expression, right? Sociologically, you could put your finger on it. That's exactly right. It was always a people. It was never just, uh, let's say, an ethic or a dynamic. And it was George Ladd who emphasized he did not want the kingdom to be equivalent to the church. And George Ladd influenced everybody my age and 20 years younger. And now more people, they don't read George Ladd as much, but he's the significant leader behind our kingdom theology today. And he emphasized the dynamic reign of God, the rule of God, opposed to the realm, which is a people, a territory, etc., and uh, so I studied kingdom, and I became convinced, no, these these two things cannot be separated. Kingdom is the, in a sense, is Israel expanded to have Jesus as the Lord. Kingdom is a people under King Jesus. It, it is not America. It is not Europe. It is not South America. It is not South Africa. It is the church. And I... I uh, I picked this up from Miroslav Volf, and I've stolen the expression. I've always said I don't know what it means, but I like it. They are they are not identical, but they're the same. The kingdom of the church. Yeah, and it sounds like some of that disruptive kingdom dynamic language. You probably need a lot of the, a little bit of that when the church is more abundant and 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 really identify with the culture, and, and people need to be shaken up. But it sounds like that's not what most of the message. A lot of North America needs to hear. <laughs> it needs to hear. Like the, the challenge is like just like in Rome, right? As you're saying in Romans, the challenge is to be in part of this concrete community with all of its struggles and 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 and, and sometimes it's not gonna seem all that dynamic, and yet there's nothing more dynamic than trying to live out, as you say, this cruciform life under yeah. Jesus together before a watching world. Yeah, I, I agree totally. And I do think that that um uh that kingdom should be an assault on our lifestyle. It should challenge, prophetically provoke, encourage all of these things all the time, uh, just as I think church should be. But church has become you know, kind of a negative, and kingdom is such a happy term. Everybody wants to be a part of the kingdom, but they can diss the church while committed to the kingdom, and I'm not sure you can do that theologically sound. You've been a guy that I think over over the years has been a sort of public voice in the church, particularly in the kind of evangelical wing of the church. And you've weighed in on so many issues. You know, I remember reading your review of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, and thinking it was so reflective and, and so interesting. And again, probably like Paul, irritated everybody a little bit. You seem like, like Paul, you seem like an equal opportunity offender at times. And, and you know, I've read things you've weighed in on, evolution or politics. And, and you, you generally, when you weigh in publicly, there's a real wisdom and reflectiveness to it. And I've really appreciated that. I'm wondering, 
What are the two or three big intellectual, cultural things you're thinking about right now that, that wow, these are things that theologically the church has got to process, and, and they're complex, here and, and things that are messy to think about? Uh, generally, only generally. I, th- I want to say always. Always <laughs> I, had, I had things to say. Okay. Um, you know, Scott, I don't think I sit around and say, what are the most pressing issues? I, I'm not a politician. Um, I go from issue to issue. Of issues that capture my attention because I'm a New Testament professor studying the Bible, and I see I've got something to say about this topic, but it might not be the most important topic. So, uh, but I think right now we need, and this is one of the big topics, I think we need a complete overhaul on our posture toward the state, toward federal government, toward national politics. The evangelical and the mainline church, called the progressive, and the conservative wings are so in bed with political parties that one has to choose a church on the basis of one's political. This is idolatrous. Yeah, anytime some created reality does your identity work, you're probably close to idolatry, right? And that's politics seems like the number one form of infotainment, entertainment, blood sport. I mean, it, it shapes our identity almost more than anything else today for the people that follow it, right? I, I totally agree. I mean, I... um I um I I was reading Facebook for a while after Trump was elected and I decided to delete people who all they wanted to do was talk about Trump. I thought, okay, the president, the national election is important, but all the time, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be trapped in that. And it happened it happened under Obama with another group of people. And so that's the, that's the issue for me is that we need to find our identity in Christ. That like the weak and the strong, we need to sit down with one another and see that our unity in Christ transcends our national political preferences and election. Um, uh, so I, I think, uh, I think that's one of the, um, th- I would say that's, that right now, I, okay, I'll put it this way. I don't think it's the most important issue, but it is. It's, it's dominating public discourse. And I think that's because we're letting our news media, our Twitter account, our Facebook account determine what we think is important. I would rather say what's important is Jesus, and we need to have conversations about him. So that's what I try to do with my books and my writing is say, let's talk about this, because this is the way it's framed in the New Testament, not upon which party you're a part of. Well, I think if that's a pressing issue, people would... It could find uh, fewer better places to start than reading Romans backwards, the gospel of peace in the midst of empire, because there's just as much factious kinds of stuff going on. And uh, yes. you offer a great first century read that's got 21st century relevance. Um, thanks for writing the book and thanks for spending some time talking to me about it. Thanks, Scott. Good talking to you. Yep, I, I agree with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Scott for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Reading Romans Backwards. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.